It's Tuesday, October 10th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In Ukraine, in Afghanistan, in most wars, the armies fight for an objective, usually defined by territory. You kill and capture the enemy in order to gain territory. In Gaza, however, the Israeli army will be controlling the territory in order to kill and capture the enemy. Now, you could say this is similar to other suppressions of revolts or other efforts by colonial powers to assert control, but even those usual forms of war are different from what we're seeing here. There are territorial strongholds in most cases of revolt, and colonial powers are extensions of a motherland somewhere, and the colonialists can be motivated, bloodily motivated, to go back home. The Indians and the Kenyans sent the English back, and the Moroccans sent the French back, But in Israel, there is no back for the Jewish people to return to. Colonialism, it's a sort of free-floating insult in academia and progressive circles these days. And to the Palestinians and their adherents, they mean it sincerely, but it doesn't really neatly apply in Israel. That's just one way in which this war is different. Hamas thinks it's fighting a war of liberation, but... It's not that the Israelis see the liberation of Palestinians as illegitimate. It's more that the Israelis earnestly don't see themselves as being in possession of anything over which they have the power to liberate. The Israelis can die or be driven to the sea, to quote one popular anti-Israeli slogan, but they can't really go anywhere. They can't meet the asks, if you will, the bloody asks of Hamas, which has never wavered in its goal of the destruction of the state of Israel. The first line of Hamas's charter after a Quranic verse is, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it just as it obliterated others before it. It then goes on to say, quote, the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews, killing the Jews, when the Jews will hide behind stones and trees, the stones and trees will say, Oh Muslims, O oh Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. In every war, the enemy is inevitably likened to murderers. But the war between Israel and Hamas is really a war between a country and a group that vows murder, is organized around murder, has as its goal murder, and has used, as recently as a few days ago, mass murder as a tactic to achieve, well, more murder. Of course, not all Palestinians are murderers. Hamas does not speak for all Palestinians. But it is this murderous faction, the elected government of Gaza, by the way, that has committed murder and is going to be treated as such by Israel. The country has officially declared war for the first time since 1973. And with tanks and bullets and the inevitable, horrible civilian casualties, it will look like a war. But for Israel, it's something different, something more dangerous, more personal, and more dire. On the show today, a closer examination of the claim that the $6 billion released to the Iranians funded the attack we saw in Israel. But first, today, in the civil trial of Donald Trump occurring in a Manhattan court, the former president's estimate of square footage of his Trump Tower triplex was called into question. So in 1994, a signed statement was shown that Trump admitted that the triplex 
was 10,996 square feet, even though for years he told banks and lenders it was 30,000 square feet. That's just one example of an inconsistency which New York State's Attorney General is going after as fraud. It's quite clear, the judge has already determined, that Trump has inaccurately filed documents exaggerating the size and values of his property. The question is, would another person be civilly pursued in such matters? If all the bank loans got repaid, and if no lenders are actually complaining, who really was the victim? Would another person in Attorney General Letitia James's situation bring such a case? So to answer those questions, we got in touch with Dennis Vaca, who himself was once literally in James's position. He was New York State's attorney general, the last Republican to hold that office. And he does not think the cases against Trump, any of them are wise. But on this matter, we talk if he would have done it, the cost of targeting a former president. And Vaco gives a very interesting answer to the question of who's the victim. That is all up next. Donald Trump is facing charges, serious civil charges, with a potential fine that could cripple his business empire. At stake is the issue that when reporting to banks and lenders the worth of his assets, he serially inflated the costs to appear as a better lending prospect than he was. The banks themselves got paid back, but this is against the law in New York state and every state. You sign your name on the line and avow that these are correct valuations of your properties. You have violated the law. Even so, there's a lot of leeway that prosecutors can exhibit in a case like this. So I wanted to ask a person who is perfectly situated, how frequent is this? Who is the victim? And what does he think of the case? Dennis Vaco was the 62nd attorney general of the state of New York. That is the office that is currently prosecuting Trump. He is the last Republican to be an attorney general in New York state. And he has presumably had to face questions of similar prosecutions. Welcome to The Gist, Mr. Vaca. Michael, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. Before we even begin, do you want to, I think it's wise to issue whatever disclosures we can. Have you endorsed Donald Trump? I know you have a client who is part of the Trump team. Many lawyers in New York have, but what do you want to say to best orient our listeners to know where you're coming from? Today, I don't believe that Donald Trump should be reelected president. Well, I supported him in 2016, uh, I voted for him in 2020. Uh, the landscape, the the political, the geopolitical landscape, the landscape within the Republican uh, Party today, and just f- looking forward to the future of America, uh, I don't think that, from my point of view, that America could withstand uh, four more years of the chaos that has existed since Donald Trump was first elected in 2016. So while many of the policies that he advanced when he was the president, uh, I supported and continue to support today, I'm just concerned, especially now in view of four indictments, this case in New York that we're going to talk about here today, uh, I'm just concerned about the future of our country because this chaos will not go away if he's elected. Uh, And that's my concern. Okay, I appreciate that. So tell me about your thoughts on the strength of the case against Trump right now. Well, the strength of the case really, you know, starts with the the breadth 
of the statute that the case is being brought pursuant to, uh, Article 63 of the New York State Executive Law essentially enumerates and articulates the powers of the Attorney General. Uh, most people don't understand, don't realize that in New York State, the Attorney General does not have primary prosecutorial authority. That prosecutorial authority is, is latent, and in many instances, unless statutorily authorized, that prosecutorial authority needs to be stimulated by, by some other executive branch power. Uh, but the statute, uh, the subdivision of, of Article 63 that Letitia James, that Attorney General James, has brought this action pursuant to is extraordinarily broad. Um, it is a catch-all, it's sub, subdivision 12 of six, uh, uh, Article 63 of the executive law, and it gives broad authority, broad power to the attorney general to first investigate uh, and then to sue to bring a civil action or to make a criminal referral to some other prosecutorial agency um, uh, if there's a, fra a fraud that has been perpetrated. Um, interestingly, the, this, this provision has been on the book since, you know, just shortly uh, after um, uh, I was born back in the 1950s. Uh, the then Attorney General Jake Javits, who eventually went on to be a New York State Senator, was principally responsible for advancing this this amendment to uh, the executive law to give this broad power to to the Attorney General. Right, 1956, Jacob Javits, a liberal Republican, correct. And 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 really was in the context of 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 consumer protection. You know, how can the Attorney General's office do more? Uh, be more aggressive and have more tools and more power to protect consumers from unscrupulous uh, business owners and, and business people. That was the genesis, the basis of the statute. And for years, the Attorney General, because of Jake Javits and Louis Lefkowitz, who really was the gold standard of attorneys general in New York State, and then you know Bob Abrams, who served for 15 years uh, very admirably, uh, the, the office was long identified as the you know chief consumer protector in New York State. And it was right. this very statute, this broad power to root out fraud in the marketplace, that is what gave the impetus to protecting consumers. Right. Extensive leeway. It's one of the reasons why Americans learned the name Elliot Spitzer when they first did. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, they might have known the name, but New York attorney generals such as yourself have used it to do just that. Uh, protect consumers, bring prosecutions, and sometimes make a name for themselves. Well, so it, it's interesting that, that you raise uh, uh, General Spitzer, Governor Spitzer's uh, name in this context, because you might remember uh, that there was a period of time early in his first term, uh, you know, in full disclosure, as you know, he defeated me for the, the office in 1998. Uh, so shortly into his first term in office, he served two, two terms before being elected governor. Uh, he was dubbed uh, either by his massive PR machine or uh, by, by friends in the media, he, uh, uh, he was dubbed the sheriff of Wall Street. Uh, because he he decided that he was going to take the enormous powers of not only 6312, but also the Martin Act, which was enacted in 1921. And the, the Martin Act, you know, frankly, is also a, a statute that gives broad authority uh, to the attorney general's office and also has some potential criminal 
uh, ramifications of criminal prosecution uh, powers associated with it. But Elliot, uh, you know, he changed the focus. So, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that my focus as attorney general vis-a-vis uh, -vis Wall Street was to go after the boiler rooms in those days, you know, the, yeah. the high pressure call centers that were calling consumers and trying to sell them on penny stocks and, you know, sell them on, you know, bad bets, if you will. Uh, Elliot then kind of uh, changed the direction to now go after the titans on Wall Street. You might remember, I mean, one of the first cases that he brought uh, and perhaps might have ultimately led to his demise was you know, to go after the New York Stock Exchange over the compensation package that the Stock Exchange had granted to Dick Grasso, who at the time was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. The chairman of the board at the time was Ken Langone. Uh, Elliot Spitzer sued Ken Langone and Dick Grasso over Grasso's, what Spitzer thought was an excessive comp package. Uh, he didn't use 6312 to do that. Uh, he used the not-for-profit not law uh, to bring that lawsuit, but that was an indication of where he, as the sheriff of Wall Street, was going to go. Uh, ultimately, right. ultimately, he didn't, you know, he didn't accomplish all that he uh, sought to accomplish in that case. He even sued Hank, Hank uh, Greenberg along the way, who was, you know, well known uh, uh, for his uh, his tightened uh, standing in the in in insurance industry. So the the shift from consumer protection uh, really began in earnest. Um, with with Spitzer, notwithstanding our lawsuit against the tobacco industry, that was totally different. It was totally different, um, a different set of, of laws, a different mindset. But I right. think that the focus, the, the the change from being a consumer protector, um, you know, at the the level where the consumers are directly impacted, that began to change with Spitzer, who then decided to go after the titans of Wall Street. Right. When you saw when you saw this case, what did you think of bringing a case for what Trump is alleged and according to the judge found to have done inflating the values of properties against the backdrop of the lenders not being harmed by that? You know, I've seen in other instances, uh, the federal government, for instance, uh, go after um, uh, residential property owners who uh, in seeking loans from banks, inflate their rent rolls so that it looks like you know there's more of the building rented than what is actually rented in an effort in an effort to receive more money from the bank than they would otherwise be entitled to if the if the true rent rolls uh, were exposed. I, I've actually had you know seen where the federal government has prosecuted individuals for phony rent rolls. So I get the concept. Uh, the concept generally here is that. You know, Donald Trump was using inflated valuations to pump up his, essentially his, his company's, you know, financial statements uh, so that banks would loan him more money. Um, so I, I, when you, when you look at it just in the, the, the very narrow band of, of allegedly inflating the value of your assets in order to get a larger loan or a different line of credit or different terms from a bank, I could understand why there was an investigation. Uh, I, so I'm, I'm not arguing with, uh, not disagreeing necessarily with the fact that there were subpoenas issued uh, and that there was an investigation. Although we got to keep in mind that the backdrop of this is the 2018 campaign for attorney general. When Letitia James, 
who had served in the Attorney General's office under General Spitzer. Uh, she was also the public advocate in New York City beforehand. So, you know, she she had been around the block in politics and government uh, downstate for, for some time. But on the campaign trail in 2018, so midterm of Trump's uh, term in office, she was campaigning on the notion that she was going to get Donald Trump. Uh, and I know that Trump's lawyers have, have raised this issue and it's been dismissed uh, by the state court judges. In other words, that it was a selective prosecution. Uh, I, I can't form an opinion about this case without taking into account the fact that before she had a lick of evidence, before she had issued, before she even had the power to issue a single subpoena, to conduct a, sing, a, a single examination of a witness, she was already proclaiming that she was going to get Donald Trump just because uh, in New York he was politically unpopular and he was the president of the United States. So my analysis of this lawsuit cannot be in just a simple vacuum within the four corners of the law. It's got to be also, my analysis is, is at some level influenced uh, by her predetermination before she was even elected that she was going to advance this case. Okay, so what about on the merits themselves? Uh, perhaps a useful question would be, did your office ever consider such a case? As a, a federal prosecutor, you know, I was the United States Attorney in the Western District in New York before I was Attorney General. Uh, I mean, just generally, that falls within the, you know, the the catch-all phrase of of bank fraud. Um, so, sixty-three twelve gives the Attorney General of New York State the ability to scrutinize uh, what uh, prospective uh, borrowers are telling banks about their financial status. And there's there's real value to that. There's the real value to that is, I mean, we saw it, you know, with the collapse of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the housing market, you know, back in 2008. I mean, there were a lot of people who were being lo loaned money uh, on faulty, if not fraudulent, uh, financial statements, and it collapsed the economy. So I understand and get the rationale for the, the prosecution, if you will, this civil case is still a prosecution. But where where I, I come to, where I'm, I'm uh, not in, in agreement with the case is that I think that this case is indeed an abuse of her prosecutorial discretion. But you do, you did just articulate that there are victims here. There are potential victims. Even if the bank did get paid, um, you made that parallel between the the time when before there was the uh, housing collapse. This sort of uh, fraud leads to economic outcomes that could uh, potentially harm even the average uh, consumer. It weakens the financial system in a way. There's no question, and, uh, and so uh, I'm I'm not suggesting that uh, she has uh, misapplied. The statute. Mm -hmm. What I am suggesting that under all of the circumstances, she has abused her prosecutorial discretion. discretion. By, by time she brought this case, so she brought this case last year, and it and understandably, you know, subpoenas were issued sometime before she filed the lawsuit. Uh, but she files this lawsuit in 2022, uh, alleging 
you know, the earliest acts that she alleges in the lawsuit occurred in 2010 and 2011. And I know there's been some debate, some discussion uh, in the courtroom about the applicability of the statute of limitations and whether or not those acts back in 2011 or 2010 uh, can be considered in this case. And, you know, there's even Trump himself, you know, proclaimed that he that he had scored a partial victory when it seemed like the judge in the case had limited the government's ability to bring evidence about the uh, the earlier um, uh, financial statements. Uh, the government's position is that with each new fraudulent uh, uh, financial statement, it extends the statute of limitations. I think that's an interesting argument, which ultimately will be decided by an appeals court. But my going back to my basic premise, she brought this case in 2022. Yes. He's long out of office. He's now out of office for, you know, going on two years uh, by the time she brings this case. The, the acts that she alleges are now also many years old. Uh, and she hasn't pointed to a single bank, a single lender who, who says that, the, that they were defrauded or that they had losses associated with these financial statements. Right. And Under it, the law, she doesn't need to. No, she doesn't have to. Right. But that, right. that's why I'm saying, Michael, I go back to her discretion here. Yes. You know, what, what, and it's, and this is a, you know, it's a very aggressive prosecution because uh, interestingly, if you look at 6312, uh, unlike a lot of statutes, you know, that articulate, you know, penalties or remedies, there are no remedies in 6312. It's sort of a, a whiteboard. It's an open slate to allow the attorney general to seek remedies from, from the courts, which is why in this instance, you know, she is seeking essentially a dissolution of, of Trump's companies. She's talking about disgorgement of, of proceeds uh, uh, and potentially the, the, the sale of properties, etc. This is a very extraordinarily aggressive lawsuit. Um, and, you know, the consequences of it could be devastating for Trump. And, but that's not why, you know, the consequences are not why I'm questioning the efficacy of the litigation. It's, it's the, the, the impact. I mean, I know, yes. that, you know, people are saying, well, you know, nobody's against, uh, uh, nobody's above the law. Above the law right? Well, you know, so that's, that's a, that's a nice little, um, you know, catchphrase that we. Yeah, but it also erases the entire idea of prosecutorial discretion. If you take that to its logical conclusion, no one's above the law. Therefore, police state and everyone going 56 should serve 90 days in jail. But it, I, I agree with what you just said. But and, but what you just said is kind of embodied in another uh, phrase that we know in, you know, in society, in the vernacular of the society, and that is justice should be blind. You know, even the lady justice, you know, standing there with the scales of justice and, the, and you know, the, the, the book of laws in one hand, she's blindfolded. So, you know, yes, nobody, nobody should be, nobody is above the law, but, but the application of the law should be even handed and should be blind to, to, you know, who it is that you're looking at. You should just, you know, should look at the facts make an assessment of the facts, make a determination about the, 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 how the facts impact the law, determine, it, determine whether or not there, were, there was real harm or just perceived harm, um, you know, and, and then, you know, um, make it employer prosecutorial discretion. I like what you just said, you know, without, without prosecutorial discretion or without discretion in the enforcement of law, 
everybody who is speeding down the, the highway at 66 miles an hour when the uh, uh, posted limit is 65 should be arrested. We know that that's not the case. Dennis Vacco was the 62nd Attorney General of the state of New York. He is in private practice with Lipmus Mathias in upstate New York. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Michael, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And now the spiel. Headline, Washington Post. Hamas received weapons and training from Iran. Officials say, well, of course they did. But this Post story, quoting anonymous officials, turns credible speculation into a bit more documentable assistance. Quote, in recent years, Hamas has benefited from massive infusions of Iranian cash as well as technical help for manufacturing rockets and drones with advanced guidance systems in addition to training in military tactics, some of which occurred in camps outside Gaza, the officials said. Massive infusions of Iranian cash. You heard that phrase. Question, who did Iran itself get their own massive infusion of cash from? Why, the Biden administration, in a recent release of $6 billion in exchange for American citizens the Iranians were holding as prisoners. At the risk of sacrificing coherence for vehemence, here is a quote from former President Donald Trump. They got five hostages. We got five hostages. Okay, that's the good news. The bad news is, and their hostages were tough, by the way, I have to tell you. That was, okay, let's assume they're doing just fine. But it was five for five. But in addition to that, we agreed to free up $6 billion. And uh, that is an absolute disaster. And I would not be at all surprised if part of that tremendous wealth that they just accumulated went into all of a sudden watching this level of aggression. But it's not that simple, say backers of the Biden administration, and they make several good points. Here was John Finer, the U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor on Fox News Sunday. Any implication uh, that money that has not yet been spent, not a single dollar of that money has yet been spent, uh, it had any role in, in the attacks uh, that took place and planning them, in equipping uh, the parties that conducted them, uh, just frankly doesn't make any sense. And it wasn't just Biden administration officials or Biden backers making this point. Here is Fox News's Jennifer Griffin accurately laying out the details of the $6 billion transfer. The White House has pushed back, as we've reported, on suggestions by Republican presidential candidates that the recent hostage deal that involved the release of $6 billion contributed to the Hamas attack. The $6 billion is still currently held in a Qatari bank account with U.S. Treasury oversight. The money came from Iranian oil sales to South Korea and did not include U.S. taxpayer dollars. NSC spokesperson Adrian Watson said in a statement, quote, not a single cent from these funds has been spent yet, and when it is spent, it can only be spent on things like food and medicine for the Iranian people. These funds have absolutely nothing to do with the horrific attacks today, and this is not the time to spread disinformation. And yet, $6 billion on the books that Iran didn't have when they were allocating their $52 billion budget does change things, doesn't it? I choose to denominate the Iranian budget in dollars, not the rial, because the rial is trading at about a quarter million rials to the dollar. So their budget is over 40 quadrillion rials. 
If Iran has to choose between military spending and almost any other kind of spending, it will never stint on military spending. But it still has to maintain some level of domestic spending just to keep its society from collapsing. And that effort is now helped along by $6 billion, which, it is true, cannot be spent on just anything, but can be spent on some of the things Iran would otherwise have to spend on. This is what's meant by the assertion that money is fungible. To the hosts of Pod Save America, former Obama administration officials Ben Rhodes and Tommy Vitor, the fungibility of money is a tedious point. But I don't know that it's an avoidable point. Let's listen to their comments. Money that had been frozen in a South Korean bank was transferred to Qatar, By the way, that was Iranian money from Iranian oil sales that were made before sanctions locked them up in South Korea. That money is now sitting in this Qatari bank. It can only be spent on non-sanctioned goods like food and medicine, uh, medical devices, things that are approved by Washington, by the Treasury Department. Qatar directly pays those suppliers. The money doesn't go to Iran. And by the way, None of that money has yeah, been spent yet. That's a yeah, pretty important so if detail. You, if you want to claim that all money is fungible, sure, we, we can go into that sort of like, you know, reductive, ridiculous place. But unspent money isn't fungible, you fucking idiot. So it's just like it's so disgusting, Ben, that these guys immediately would leap to politicize an ongoing terror attack. And by the way, of course, Iran does provide Hamas with money that they use for terrorist attacks. That is true. But none of this money that went from South Korea to a Qatari bank was used in what happened today. And to suggest otherwise is just, you're either an idiot or you're a liar. Well, knowing my own mind, I think I'm not lying. I have to ask myself, am I being an idiot? Let me do a self-check-in. Nope, the answer is no, not an idiot. The $6 billion, which has not been spent yet, is earmarked for humanitarian projects, and it did not come from U.S. taxpayers. So some Republicans, like J.D. Vance, who are saying that, they're just dead wrong. And also, it's not merely going into some Iranian general fund to slosh around. But, well, let's quote from the AP's fact-checking arm on this matter, quote, foreign policy analysts told PolitiFact that fungibility is a legitimate concern in this case, quote, if you had a large end-of-year bonus payment coming your way, might you start spending more money in the meantime? Of course, money is fungible, said Matthew Kronig, a Georgetown University professor of government and foreign service. This is especially true in a country with a highly centralized economy and government, Matthew Levitt of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy policy said, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, continuing with the Levitt quote, is an influential military branch within Iran, controls so much of the Iranian economy, there's no way to have comfort that the goods aren't sold and some funds go to underwrite militancy. Yes, some funds certainly will. It's impossible to say that no portion of this funding went in some way to fund the actions of Hamas. We are funding the state that is funding Hamas, or at least giving them back their funds. Some of their funds as a matter of fungibility, of course, went to the actions that we saw. But also, we have to say, this is true of any humanitarian funding Ever. When the UN rushes in to give aid to the innocent victims of Gaza, and there will be many innocent victims of Gaza, and the UN will rush in to help them, whose job is it to normally help the people of Gaza? Well, you could say the government of Gaza. And who's the government of Gaza? It's also Hamas. 
This doesn't mean that humanitarian funding should not be given. You have to give it. Well, that is, if you don't want to act inhumanely. I also think the second order effects of the prisoner exchange goes beyond the question of funding. We, or much of the foreign policy establishment, was operating for years under the notion that, yes, it is true in some abstract way that paying ransoms incentivizes hostage taking, but still you have to do it, and hostages were going to be taken anyway. But now the abstraction got more concrete and a lot bloodier. But perhaps the most important point is that Iran very badly wants to fund the very bad. It is more in their core interests, as they see their interests, than actually helping their own citizens to flourish. Without the $6 billion, there still would have been this attack. There maybe would have been some slightly smaller version of this attack, which still would have been the worst attack that Israeli civilians have ever suffered. So it's not ultimately a question of who's the idiot, who's the liar, or who's the dupe, or is this a disaster? It's all a really hard choice with no good answers when you're dealing with a no good geopolitical actor. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Ellipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Thanks for listening. Over 40 quadrillion reals. That's really, really ridiculous. That's really, really big. That's really, really... Maybe a pun doesn't go here. Maybe I don't say a pun. Okay, how about that? Taking it out. <laughs>